We continue in this series that we've been looking at, The Life of David, a man after God's heart, and uh, learning what that means, what that looks like. And I think it's an opportunity for us to try to figure out how to put that in pra- into practice in our life as well. <laughs> Don't leave without her. <laughs> And I think we have a great opportunity today as we look at chapter 24 of 1 Samuel to see something pretty uh, significant here. You've probably read this before, and maybe at the first part of this chapter you've kind of snickered a little bit about all that goes on here, and you'll see what I mean when I, when I get to this. But I think it's an opportunity for us to be able to discover some principles here that God has for us today. And I, I'm, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart it might be totally unrelated to maybe what is being said here, but that God's, God's Spirit will just come upon you and, and teach you today through this chapter that we're looking at. And we've been discovering that David is the man after God's own heart. And chapter 24 shows that the man after God's own heart does not seize the kingship that God promised, but waits for it to be given to him. We're going to look at this, and, and there's some principles involved with this. We're going to look at this chapter, and uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and read through it and uh, just follow along. It, it, again, it's, it's a great chapter to be able to learn some of the, God's principles here, especially when it comes to God's timing and His waiting and His will. I mean, the big question is, how do we know God is leading in something? How do we know this is God's will and not just, God, not just devil's uh, uh, temptation in us? And here we, we see this played out in David's life. Let me read chapter 24 to you as I get on my glasses to read this small print. And uh, um, again, just to follow along and, and discover what God has for you. Chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were, back, or were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. 
May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be, your, be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, chapter 24, 1 Samuel. Very interesting portion of Scripture, and I think it's something, like I said, we can learn quite a bit from different principles here. And we find David and his men uh, at En Gedi, an oasis of, of, of the western shore of the Dead Sea. And he was favored with a, a, a perennial, this is place that has a, a spring there, located several hundred feet up a large cliff. So if you could just picture this, this, this scene going on. And in chapter 23, Saul had gone off to fight the Philistines, but there's no hint of how that came about as far as the results of that. You know, how, if the Philistines did better than Saul, or Saul did better than the Philistines. And, but Saul now is back at David's throat again, trying to kill him, going after him. It seems like a, a broken record over and over again. And Saul's never without a scouting report, people are telling him where David is and how to find him and where to go and that. And so he comes after David near En Gedi with 3,000 of his top flight troops ready to go. And these men are ready to do whatever Saul wants them to do. And then needing a restroom, a little break, Saul enters the cave in verse 3. And then the surprise, as you see in Scripture, there you're, you're, you're reading through the story, and you're going, okay, wow, all right, he's got to take a little break. And then you, you hear the, 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 the clincher that David and his men are back in that same cave. Now, you, you picture it. He could have gone into any of those caves that were in there. But he was guided to that one cave that had David and all his men there. Scene is set in just these three quick verses that we see here in this chapter. And whatever happens next can't fail to be exciting. What is going to happen next? And it's like, oh, and the show goes to a commercial break, and you're thinking, what is next? And so we can see a couple things here in what I want to bring out here in Scripture, kind of dividing this portion up in the, in the three sections. This first section that we see here uh, is from verses 4 through 7. And it speaks about a, a test for God's servant. God's servant is going to be tested here. And God's servant here, of course, is David. So while Saul relaxes, 
David and his men carry on a, a spirited debate about the will of God for David's life. It's almost as if David's men began singing a little portion of that chorus. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord hath made. He's ready to go. There's Saul. We can get him. God has provided for you. This is the day to go get him. And who could not see what God had brought about? So he's saying, they're saying, look, here's the day God spoke to you about. See, I'm giving your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as you please. And it doesn't matter whether David's men are quoting a previous prophecy of God or simply interpreting the, the present occasion. They can tell a stroke of a providence when they see one. And no one needs to go to Bible college to understand what God is up to in this situation. Bringing Saul to this cave where David and his men are, fulfilling a prophecy that was supposedly said back in the time of when he was fighting, actually David was fighting Goliath. Interesting how they interpret that. David's men are going, hey, uh, remember what he said? Back, God said back there to you, this is your enemy. He's provided. Then David's action follows. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes up to, to Saul, and he cuts off part of the edge of Saul's robe. He kind of gets caught up, I think, caught up in that situation, thinking, well, okay, God has provided. We're in this cave. Saul comes into this cave. He doesn't know we're here. End of story. I guess I could take control here and take the kingdom and and be king. But he doesn't do that. He still does a little symbolic gesture, letting Saul know, I could have gotten you right now. And so he creeps up and, and cuts off a little edge of uh, Saul's robe. It's very interesting, and back in chapter 15, the tearing of a robe signified the forfeiture of the kingdom for Saul. When Samuel was with Saul and and uh, Saul was disobeying and not doing the right thing. And Saul said, no, you know, don't leave without you know, blessing and, and being with me. And, and when he grabbed on to, to Samuel's robe, he ripped it. And Samuel said, yep, this means that your, the kingdom will be torn from you as well. And, uh, and so David staked his claim to the kingdom that day in the cave when he removed a piece from Saul's robe. It's almost like, yep, that's, uh, that's my kingdom right there. And I'm going to show you here in a moment. And so uh, David, David's act may have been a, a symbolic declaration of revolt, but only, only such heavy symbolism explains David's remorse here. If you look in verse 5, it says, David's heart struck him. Even his symbolic action had gone too far. He wanted to do something, but even that was too far. Maybe David's action and especially his remorse explain this, this, uh, this principle. Uh, as he says, May God keep me from doing this thing to my Lord, to God's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, for he is God's anointed. See that in verse 6. As God's anointed, Saul was a sacred person and must not be violated. Sure, he might not have been doing the right thing as a king, but he was still God's anointed. We've got a, in our lives people in our lives who are anointed by God. People in our lives who are placed in position of leadership by God. And we may not agree with some of the things that might be going on. But as God's anointed, we better be careful not to cut off that little corner of, of their robe. 
we better be careful to respect the position that God has placed them in. Now, I'll let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart about whatever that might be for you. But there's a principle here. There's a principle here to understand. I mean, is it, why did a commentary, one person in the commentary said, why did men consider the anointed to be uh, uh, kept from attack and to be preserved from degradation? And this person goes on to say, the answer lies in the fact that once anointed, the individual was set apart or consecrated to God. A specific, he continues, he says, a specific bond was established in relation to God, in separation from men and women in general and from the common aspects of life in particular. So to touch, defile, and to attack the anointed one one was to approach the Lord himself and to seek to defile, harm, and remove the Lord from his rightful place. So it's attacking God. So God's anointed, if they are violated, violated in this way, if they are attacked in this way, then in, in, in essence, God is being attacked in this way as well. But try to tell that to David's men. <laughs> they were ready, ready for Saul's head. Apparently, David had to get quite forceful with them. Uh, you wouldn't know it from our Bible versions because most of them say in verse 7 that David persuaded them or, or rebuked them or, or restrained them, these men, with, with words. But the Hebrew reads this way. It says, so David tore apart his men with the words. Trying to tear them apart. Uh, suggesting that David had to resort to a violent and threatening language to calm them down. You imagine the setting in that cave. And the cave is pretty, it echoes and everything else. You can probably imagine, David's trying to tell his men, no, I'm not going to do this type of thing. I can't do this thing. Trying to keep quiet so Saul doesn't find out as he leaves the cave what's going on. David tearing them apart trying to stop them from wanting to um, cause Saul harm. He had to tear them up or, or cut them down with his words in order to prevent the spilling of Saul's blood. And meanwhile, Saul gets up and goes on his way. End of verse 7. Oblivious to the fact that his main enemy had just saved his skin. He could have let the, David could have let his men go ahead and go after him. Then David wouldn't have had any problem. You know, it wasn't his fault. Others took care of it. But David is still in control of his men. And as a future king, you have to be responsible with some things like that. And you have to show integrity in those areas. A test. A test of God's servant in this. Uh, let, me, let me pause right there and go back to the cave for a moment. There sits helpless Saul. And David squats down on his haunches, watching him, thinking, hmm, how can I take care of this? And, 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 and words flow through David's mind. See, I'm giving you your enemy into your hands. I'm delivering him. So was this providence or was this temptation? You know, every day we face that type of thing. Is this God's will or is this just the devil trying to get me off track? How do we discern those things? How do you discern the difference? It was a searching test for God's servant. Only the principle 
the sanctity of God's anointed answers the dilemma. It's not so clear to David's men, though. But for David, it was one thing to have the promise of the kingdom. How the kingdom should come to him was another matter. God's will, and here's the principle we, we need to understand, God's will must be accomplished in God's way. The end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. The ends do not justify the means. That's so important. And we need to remember that in this day and age as well. But David's men don't see this. They claim to have the inside track and know how God relates to this specific situation. It's so obvious and so clear. Right there, Saul. God has provided. Go get him. And sometimes we need to step back in those moments where Saul has been delivered to us. We need to, we need to step back and go, okay, is this God's work? Or is this something that I'm just I'm being tempted by to, to avert the way God wants this to come about? We sometimes too quickly rush into what needs to happen because we might think, oh, look at all the circumstances and all the situations and maybe even some people who are, are cheering us on. We need to step back and, and find out, is this really God's plan here? Is this how it needs to come about? Maybe, yes, it's going to end up down here, down the road. This is what's going to happen. But is this the way God wants it to happen? The means is very important. The way God brings about His plan, it needs to be approved by God how we come about to the ends. You know, Jesus faced the same test. The devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and said to him, all these things I will give to you. And what the devil offered him was the will of God for Jesus' life. No doubt Jesus knew that God had promised him all these kingdoms and their splendor. But God's will must come to pass in God's way. Not through uh, respect to the devil, but through the humiliation of the cross. And we also too as we go through tests like this, we need to realize that we need to surrender our, our preconceived notions of situations and be able to lay that before Jesus and say, is this the way? Is this how we should be coming about it? This kind of test is not confined to David and Jesus. It comes again and again to most all God's servants. It is the temptation, basically, of the shortcut. we got to get from here to there, and this looks like it's an easy path. Why do we need to go around this way and, and, and make it all difficult? Here we go. Didn't God provide this way then? Even our, 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 our thoughts and often desires is to take that shortcut. Is to, is to go, this is the best way, because it's the easy way, and maybe God doesn't want it to be the easy way. Maybe God has something else along the, the, the long path, the difficult path, to teach you, to help you develop in. We sometimes long to find a key, or a major breakthrough, or a decisive insight that will place our, our Christian living on some kind of higher plane where we most always 
uh, uh, are above hindrance, uh, are above frustration, don't have any despair. Uh, take the easy way. Easy way. And some some Christians claim they have found this kind of secret. Five ways to decide this, and and it makes it easy. You know, life hack for uh, being a Christian or something. Now we, we really, we yearn for that shortcut around the difficult, time-consuming labor of actually being sanctified. To follow after God, to become like Jesus, to, to follow in His steps, there is no shortcut. There is no shortcut. To be set apart for God, it takes time, experience, and moments where, where we are tested. But boy, we need discernment in those moments. No wonder Paul left us this prayer in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. says that, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. We need that prayer. <laughs> abound in depth of insight. Then the second section, verses 8 through 15, we see an appeal to God's justice. Here comes David out of the cave and says, Hey, Saul, here I am. But he comes out and says, My Lord and King. And that it should, should surely brought some goosebumps to Saul's psyche, especially after he turned around and saw David with his face to the ground, paying him respect. It wasn't that, Saul, that David came out of the cave and said, Oh, they saw, look what I got. He showed respect to the king, bowing down before him, before his enemy. But he's still the king. David gives uh, no time for Saul to reply, but then he launches into this extended speech in which he argues the case for his innocence in verses 9 through 11. And then it enters into a plea for God's justice in verses 12 through 15. And David rehearses for Saul what we already know, the fact of providence. Your eyes see how God gave you into my hand today in the cave, in verse, in verse 10. The providence uh, that, that of God and prov- providing the opportunity. The voice of uh, opportunism. Some, some said to kill you. Some, some people were saying to kill you. And, and then the principle of restraint is shown here. In verse, all of this is in verse 10. I will not put forth my hand against my master, for he is God's anointed. I will restrain from acting upon what is before me here. And then, of course, the proof of it all in verse 11. Now, you think the bottom dropped out of Saul's stomach when David held up that chunk of his robe? Imagine being Saul, and you're going, Oh, my. <laughs> He was there, you know, and it just comes upon you, thinking, oh my goodness. He was in that cave. And David, he could have been far more cutting than this, though. He could have done a lot more than just the robe. But how can Saul see to attack David when there's obviously no harm, no revolt, or even wrong in David towards Saul? And yet... David does not seek his security in any change of heart in Saul. He doesn't ask Saul to change his heart about who, who he is or in any, any kind of uh, fresh type of promise. 
from Saul. But he casts all this upon God. He says, may God judge between me and you, in verse 12. David is confident that God will bring vengeance upon Saul for him. When we are in situations when we can take revenge, be careful. <laughs> be careful with that. I just want to interject that right now, and I'll get to it a little bit later. But we need to be careful when there's that opportunity. Because we need to not go after them, but we need to go after God about them. Let God take care of it. Let God guide and direct and all that. And then David assures Saul, I shall never lay a hand on you. And, this, and, and he said this kind of wickedness will not come from David, which seems to be a point of alluding to the, uh, the old proverb that he mentions there. David may intend that that proverb, from wicked men comes forth wickedness, kind of in a double way there, as a vindication of himself. And he has no murderous plans for Saul. I'm not going to go killing you, Saul. But also, too, as a condemnation of Saul, in saying that, uh, that he's uh, wickedly seeking David's life. And Saul is both wicked and stupid for the king of Israel is trying to track down a dead dog or a single flea. It, really, you're putting all this effort into coming after me, someone who, you know, as David is saying, someone who has no intention to harm you, no intention to be on your bad side. I'm for you. I'm with you. But you want to kill me? This, this dead dog, this, this little flea, spent a lot of effort on such, such a, an insignificant thing like me. And the point, that David, the point is that David not only uh, will not, but cannot harm Saul. David then comes back to his original point. He has committed his cause to God. In verse 15, May God be the judge and decide between me and you, May he examine and defend my cause and give judgment for me by rescuing me from your clutches. And here is the secret that explains David's waiting. He has confidence in God's justice and in God who will bring justice for him. And too often we get impatient for justice to happen. And we want to take the law into our own hands. We want to go ahead and, and provide justice. You know, God hasn't done it yet. I think we need to teach this person a, a thing or two when we need to step back and allow God's timing to happen and allow God's way to happen in these situations. Whatever conflict you might be in, we need to allow God to take care of it. Let God, God's plan play out in this way, the way He wants it, the, in the timing that He wants it. There will be vengeance, but God will bring it. David will take no vigilante action uh, himself. The case is in God's hands. He will prosecute it and decide it in David's favor. So David will wait rather than grab after God's gift of, of kingship, the kingdom. David obeyed what, uh, what, what Romans 12 verse 19 says, even before Paul wrote it. Although the concept does come from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Leviticus chapter 19. It says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So one qualification, leaving judgment in God's hands and committing vengeance to God's timeline. It's no easy, easy thing to do. But you check out some of the biblical prayers in Psalms, 
They get pretty emotional about their enemies. They cry out to God about them. You know, in your faithfulness, destroy them. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God, is one, one section. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. These people are pretty passionate towards their enemies that God would bring justice. And so in your waiting, in your patience as much as you have, it's all right to be emotional about the situation towards God, crying out to Him. We spoke about that before as we looked at the Psalms. Crying out to God about the situation, literally. Showing Him your heart. He already knows it. Where are you with that person? Where are you with that situation that so frustrates you? Why doesn't God act? Why doesn't God just do what He should be doing? Take care of that person that's wronged me. It's all right to voice that emotionally before God. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. You don't really need to hide that. It's being honest before Him. And we see this through, through the Psalms and some of the prayers. The thing about these passionate and high-heated prayers is that they're also obedient prayers. What, you know, what's the prayer, prayer doing except what Scripture commands them to do? Committing vengeance to God. Committing that situation to God and committing the, 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 the vengeance of that in God's hands. And the psalmist doesn't retaliate, but asks God to bring judgment, to set things right. So if God's crushed and afflicted people cannot place their case in His hands and expect Him to bring just vengeance on their behalf, what hope can they have? But we do have hope. We place those conflicts and those situations in, in God's hands, not try to take them back up again. That's probably the most difficult thing to do. Leave it in God's hands. Let Him take care of it. Only a God who rights the wrongs inflicted on His people can be their well-proved help in troubles. So who can blame the psalmist and these people who pray if, if their cries are wrapped in emotion? And so if you come to God in that way, don't, don't try to confine it. Don't try to hold it, hold it back. Let God know. This is what I'm thinking, and this is what I think should happen, but I trust in you. Trust in you and your timing that you will take care of it. As Romans 12, 19 talks about, I'm leaving this in, I'm leaving room for your wrath in this situation. It is yours to avenge, not mine. You will repay, not me. And then uh, the final section here in verses 16 through 22 of this chapter we see an assurance of God's faithfulness. An assurance of God's faithfulness. Now, after Saul recovers himself, seeing uh, David come out of the cave there, uh, showing him the, the, the little cut-off part of his robe, he answers David. And Saul's speech is found in verses 17 through 22. It can be broken down in, uh, very simply in three sections. What Saul acknowledges in verses 17 through 19. What Saul knows in verse 20 and what Saul wants in verse 21. And as you look through this, you can see this very clearly. In that first section, Saul uses the Hebrew term for good or goodness four times, calling, uh, calling David good uh, or the goodness that he has shown Saul. 
Now, you know, even though we can't uh, see this easily in our, our English translations. And Saul admits that David, the caveman, has shown him indisputable goodness. And then Saul declares what Jonathan had already said, uh, said Saul knew, that David would certainly be king, verse 20. So Saul wants David to go on oath that when he comes to power, he will not wipe out Saul's household, verse 21. It's a protection that David had already sworn to, to Jonathan and his household, but David gave his word to Saul in verse 20, 22, the first part of verse 22. But what, what does David receive from all of this? Only another assurance that God's promise of the kingdom to him will surely come to pass, verse 20, as Saul voiced that to him. He only hears once more that God's word is dependable, and sometimes God's servants need something that simple, that God's word is dependable. We can rely upon his word. But how can the words of David's enemy carry divine assurance to David? This was coming from Saul. How could he trust what he was saying? I mean, doesn't the character of the speaker negate the quality of the message? Not necessarily. Sometimes the, the firmest assurances can come from the enemy. I mean, if you've ever been to a sporting event, the other team sometimes after the game says, wow, you really got a good player in that guard. He handles the ball wonderfully, shoots the ball incredibly, and we could not contain him. Man, he is incredible. And coming from the other team about that, you're thinking, wow, that's, that's big. Sometimes the other teams don't want to really admit <laughs> that they've been beaten by a certain player. And so coming from the enemy, still truth happens. Still truth is spoken and expressed. If God can speak sense through the mouth of a donkey, surely he can confirm truth through the lips of a deranged king. And it should be doubly assuring when even Saul recognizes David's coming kingship. Maybe it was the day the Lord had made, but for his own purposes in his own way. Now, this whole chapter could have ended really fast. This whole book could have ended really fast if David took it into his own hands and did what his men wanted him to do. But could you see that play out? How that would have happened? What would have been the outcome of all that? Uh, yes, you've got 3,000 of Saul's men out there ready to go after him. But I think David probably had some of those men under his control at time. And so also, too, if they see their king is dead, they might be going, hmm, glad he's gone. Or, wow, okay, well, next up, who's king now? And they'll follow him. And maybe all that might have played out really nice for a little bit. But just imagine David then having to look behind him all the time, wondering who is going to get me now. Because no one will have respect for the king. And so he would have brought on the whole problem and issues that Saul was having. And I'm sure then too, I think I'm sure, that David would probably head down the same road that Saul had, being a little crazy about keeping his kingship, being a little crazy and paranoid about people around him. Probably being pretty uh, stricken by God coming to him all the time and saying, you're a man after God's heart. You're a man after God's heart, right? 
And there would have been that conflict all the time. The kind of same conflict that maybe you bump up against when you have conviction. <laughs> and you've got something that's gone on in your life, you know what's wrong, and God comes up against you with His Word or someone else, and, and, and you're confronted with what you've done, the sin that you have done, and you're convicted. And I'm sure David would have been convicted all the way along in his kingship, that he took the kingship instead of receiving it from God. There's a lot of things probably we could do in our lives in the same way to grab that, that thing that God has promised right now, that shortcut that we can take. But remember, there is no shortcut in our journey with Christ. Those long journeys and those difficult moments are developing in us that character and the fruits of the Spirit that we need to be developing in our lives. And then we see in the last uh, portion of that verse, you know, it, 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 it's one thing to get assurance. It's another thing to be pretty stupid, too. Um, David has no misconceptions about this. Saul goes home, but then David heads off into the strongholds. <laughs> He's not going to go back yet. He's heard Saul say this before. He's like, nah, yeah, okay. Have, have a good time, Saul. I'll, I'll see you later. They head up and get into a more safe place, secure place. You still got to be wise. So you got to know your, your audience in that way. Um, sure, there's grace involved, but then you need to be wise in, in how you deal with people in that way. So what can we learn here? I think the biggest thing we can learn from this is God's plan done in God's way. I mean, we can step forward and we think we might know what's best, but <laughs> in the long run, we'll realize we should have probably waited or we should have probably taken the path that God wanted us to take, even though it might have meant going the long way around. <clears throat> God's plan needs to be done in God's way. And, and as far as God's guidance, what area do you need God's guidance in? Are you, are you having difficulty figuring out if it's God's providence for this or if it's Satan's temptation for you to take a shortcut. You know, James writes to us in chapter 1, verse 5, in his book, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We need to ask God. If you're, if you're going through a situation where you're thinking, oh, I don't know if this should happen or not. Is God providing in this situation or what? Go to Him in prayer. Get guidance. Ask for wisdom. He'll provide it. Just be listening for it. Be aware of it. He will bring it to you. Ask God for the wisdom to know what is right and the grace to follow His leading. Are you up against something like that? Maybe you've been up against something like that, and you remembered that, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was, that was the wrong decision. Are you learning from your past mistakes as you come up against maybe another situation where you're wondering if it's God's providence or Satan's temptation? Ask God for wisdom in it. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth if we listen, if we're discerning into that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up there. They're going to lead us in a couple songs. They, they sing these songs. I want you also to just to realize that God wants the best for you. 
If you're going through a situation where God has promised something in your life and you're thinking, I can do this, but is it in your strength? Is it in your wisdom? Or are you trusting God to take care of this? Are you trusting God to provide the approved means of getting to this end? We need to realize that God was there for you provide that. If you need to come and pray, <clears throat> asking God for wisdom in certain situations, uh, I encourage you to come to the altar and pray. Give those things to God and ask Him to give you wisdom in those situations, whatever you might be going through. Is there, is there a, 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 a promise that God has placed on your heart that you know down the end of the line there, this is where God's going to have you, but in between point A and B, are you... Are you, are you trying to figure out about God's plan, is it, you know, which direction, go to Him in prayer. Ask for wisdom. He will provide it. The Holy Spirit will provide for you. So if you need to come pray, I encourage you to pray as, as we sing these last two songs.